Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. This evening, we're going to spend some time with St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. I don't know, I mean, this, uh, the Theology of the Body is an interesting set of uh, talks that St. John Paul II gave not long after he was made Pope, beginning in September of 1979, that were later correlate, collated into a book, and we might say an entire sort of cottage industry developed beginning in the mid-1990s, early 2000s, to interpret his theology of the body, what he meant by it, and to make it applicable and helpful to young adults, uh, teens, anyone who really wanted to understand the church's teaching on sexuality, which is why John Paul wrote those talks and gave them. Um, We're going to focus just a little bit on some of the major themes of the theology of the body, Some of you probably may have already read a lot of the Theology of the Body. Maybe you've read people like uh, Christopher West or George Weigel, uh, Jose Granados uh, has written a lot on this. Um, I always forget Stephen Ebert's wife's name. That's horrible. Uh, Mary and Stephen Ebert. There it is. Uh, They wrote a a Theology of the Body for teens. So it's all over. Uh, There hasn't been a lot of uh, robust theological work done on the theology of the body and what John Paul was or was not attempting to do. This evening, I'm going to, as I say, sort of skip stones a little bit over the themes of the theology of the body and then connect those to six very brief points of what St. Thomas Aquinas taught in in the 13th century. Um, I don't think that St. John Paul II thought he was doing anything particularly original in the theology of the body, if sometimes that that claim is made. I don't think he would subscribe to that claim. He was attempting to articulate what had been the traditional understanding from a, of, of human sexuality by the church, although from a biblical perspective, which was somewhat new by the time you get to the late 20th century. So that's our itinerary for this evening, and it's always a joy for me to be able to talk about the great St. John Paul II and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. So to begin with, the the theology of the body, as I said, um, is a series of catechetical addresses. Even even in Pope Francis, John Paul didn't begin this, but uh, it's been continued through him all the way to our present Holy Father, Pope Francis. You know, the Holy Father every Wednesday has a general audience, and you can get tickets. If you go to Rome and you go to Rome, you can be in the Pope's general audience and see him. You might be 50 yards away from him, but you'll get to see him, and he speaks all in Italian, and you won't necessarily know what he's saying. And then you can read the translation later in the day on the Vatican website. 
So this is what St. John Paul II did. And then he, the Pope has a catechetical address that he gives for maybe 10 minutes of some text, some topic that he's working on or wants, and he goes thematically. What we now know is that Carol Wojtyla, the man who was elected to be St. John Paul II, the man who was elected Pope, had intended to publish a book in 1978 called Male and Female, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. So he had a book ready to go, and he became Pope. Um, and so the theology of the body, what he ended up doing was taking that manuscript, not publishing it as a book, and he would, he would basically cut out a paragraph here, a paragraph there, have one, uh, he'd scratch out, and his handwriting was very poor, he'd scratch out an introduction, he'd, then he would tell his little nuns, his Polish nuns in the papal residence, okay, now insert the first three paragraphs of page 30 of the pet manuscript, and then he'd write out a little conclusion for that week. That's how he did these things, okay? So when you read the Theology of the Body, you are in fact reading basically the book he wrote just with these added introductions and conclusions each week. You're reading his manuscript. You already had it ready to go. You ask yourself, well, why didn't he publish the book? Well, he didn't feel like in, in 1979, popes really didn't publish books until... He, now, he did eventually, but it wasn't a thing. It wasn't really a thing for popes to do. And, of course, we know Benedict, Pope Benedict published three books as pope, and Pope Francis has as well, right? So the first thing to note then, yep, it was a book before he became pope. The second thing to note is that these are catechetical addresses, which means they're intended to catechize. He's not trying to convince non-Christians of the truth of Catholic teaching. He's talking to you and to me. He's talking to believers who are already baptized, who already know something of what the church teaches, and maybe having trouble understanding it or even accepting it. So it's for Christians and particularly even for Catholics. And so the theology of the body, unlike St. Thomas in a lot of these matters, takes scripture as its starting point, not, say, the philosophy of the human person or natural law. He takes scripture. He starts with the Bible. Uh, he's not interested in the theology of the body and making philosophical arguments for the very teachings that he's giving you. He wants to stick with scripture as much as possible, even though he considered himself primarily a philosopher. Now, why would I bring in St. Thomas to all of this? Well, because Carol Wojtyla was fundamentally a Thomist. There, was, there used to be a huge debate about this. Is he a Thomist? Is he a phenomenologist? That pretty much has generally been settled by most scholars. He was a Thomist. He was classically trained as a priest. And in, in the day, in the 50s, until the mid-80s, every priest who was, who was ever trained to be pre, a priest, even if you were being trained in an underground seminary in Krakow, hiding from Nazis and Russians, you were reading St. Thomas to become a priest. Every priest knew St. Thomas until you get to about the mid-80s. Right? That's not to say no priest knows about St. Thomas. It's just not as emphasized unfortunately for us, okay? Every, every, so he knew St. Thomas, and he had a profound appreciation, especially for St. Thomas's metaphysics, his anthropology, and his morality. Um, he, had, he, he had trouble with it. He had trouble. It was, it was not like anything he had ever read or learned. He considered himself an artist. He didn't even early on consider himself a philosopher. He wanted to be an actor. 
He was a dra- he was a drama person, and he he told one of his childhood friends in, in an interview much later after he became pope that there was a moment when everything that he was reading in Saint Thomas he said just sort it just sort of clicked, and he said a whole new world sort of opened before him, and he understood all of reality in a much more profound way than he had ever understood it before. So you can imagine a young early 20s, Kara Wojtyla, tr- struggling over St. Thomas's Summa and trying to understand distinctions and objections and what is he talking about? And then, oh, he gets it, right? That's Tom, that's, that's Wojtyla. Nevertheless, even though he was a big fan of St. Thomas and considered himself a Thomist, in his early career, especially in his early life as a priest, as a young priest, he had become concerned that theology and philosophy, even particularly Thomism, had become too abstract and was no longer able to reach those in the pews, had become too disconnected from people's lived experience. This is why you often hear about him becoming a phenomenologist, which is the philosophy of exploring human experience. This is why you have all sorts of... Um, Stories of the young Wojtyla in Poland, you know, getting to know young families and constantly being surrounded by young people as they're getting started in the world and dating and getting married because he's trying to figure out how can all of this philosophy and theology that I have learned, how can this speak to these people and help them to understand their lives and their world and God in their world? So even though he was interested in in Thomas and human experience, he and therefore phenomenology, he did not accept phenomenology uncritically. Um, and even though he was interested in reconnecting theological and philosophical thought with human experience, um, he was no relativist. He thought that reality was true and objective and revelation is true and objective and that God is true and objective. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. And Christians believe that the world makes sense, even at times when it doesn't seem to. And that creation makes sense. And that there is purpose and meaning to the world, to how you're made, to how I'm made, and how we're structured. And that even though the mind can know this, it can be clouded by sin, but that scripture and faith can in fact reveal to us what not only what we should already know, be able to know, but also reveal to us our higher purpose, and our higher destiny. This is all Wojtyla's sort of thinking as a young priest. So, moving then to the theology of the body. The first theme from the theology of the body I'd like to share with you is what St. John Paul II calls original solitude. The scriptural foundation for the theology of the body is the creation story that is found in the second and third chapters of Genesis. You know Genesis 1 is the seven days, Genesis 2 begins with God putting Adam in a garden alone. For St. John Paul II, knowing, of course, that Genesis is an inspired story, is an inspired um, narrative, it also, for him, there's also obviously a human community and a human author behind um, the story of Genesis 2, even though inspired by the Holy Spirit. So John Paul always characterized chapter 2 of Genesis, and this is actually a direct quote. He says, the second chapter of Genesis constitutes in some way the oldest description that we have. 
of, of man's self-awareness. It's the oldest reflection of a man, of man on himself. And together with chapter 3, he says, it's the first witness of what man thinks about himself in the world and before God. So he sees the Genesis narrative as a divinely inspired account of man's self-understanding. And the primal experience of man that is revealed in that Genesis narrative is what John Paul refers to as original solitude. We're alone. Man is alone before God, and he is alone in the world. And John Paul, therefore, draws two conclusions from this. First, that created man finds himself from the first moment of existence before God in search of his own identity. Who am I in this garden before the divine with all of these animals? He says, you can say that he's looking for his own purpose and his definition. Today we would say as I, he's looking for his identity. And so John Paul concluded that in some way this continues in all of us. All of us are always engaged in a subjective search for who we are. A subjective search, John Paul says, for our objective identity. Because we have an objective identity. We just have to claim it. What is our search for who we are and who God made us to be? So the search to accept and live out the identity and the vocation that God has inscribed in our very existence. And the second conclusion that John Paul reaches from the Genesis narrative is that man's knowledge of himself or our self-knowledge goes hand in hand with knowledge of the world and not apart from the world. Because Adam realizes that he's different from the rest of the creation. He's different from the animals. He's not like them. The body, for St. John Paul II, plays a significant role in this realization. It's not just an idea or idealism in Adam, in the man. Because it's the human body that reveals to the man that he is different. He doesn't look like these other creatures. His body is different than these other creatures. It's the structure of the body, this is kind of an important point for the theology of the body that we'll get to later, it's the structure of the body, I always like to point to the fact that we have opposable thumbs, for instance, uh, that allows us to be the author, this is a direct quote, it's the structure of the body that permits us to be, quote, the author of genuinely human activity. He says the body expresses the person. If you don't remember anything else tonight, that's one thing to remember. The body expresses the person. Who you are is expressed in the body. Even just the basic thing that I'm talking, my body is helping me to communicate to you right now. I'm expressing myself to you. But even it goes even deeper than that for St. John Paul II and St. Thomas Aquinas. This is precisely why John Paul says that when Adam first sees Eve... He does not notice that they are different. He notices that they are the same. This at last is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. It's sin that introduces the differences. He notices she is not an animal, that they, finally he has someone like him. He is no longer alone. Right? So one of the central themes of the theology of the body 
is that the body expresses the person. And the creation of the woman means that mankind has two complementary ways of existing in the body, of being body. Two ways of being human, male and female. The human body, in its male and female complementarity, has what John Paul calls a spousal attribute, or you've probably heard the word phrase, a spousal meaning. There's a spousal meaning of the body, which is to say, and we'll get into this a little bit more, that the body, both a man's body and the woman's body, is in fact directed to another. Is directed outward to the other to another person in gift. And he says that the conjugal union carries within itself, this is a direct quote, carries within itself a particular awareness of the meaning of the body in the reciprocal self-gift of the person. I hope tonight you'll also see that it's, he's not simply just talking about the physical act of sex. There's something deeper than going on than the fact that pieces fit together, although that's a part of this. Okay. There's a deeper reason that the body, that the human person is directed outward in gift. And it has to do with the act of creation. The creation back in the first chapter of Genesis, ex nihilo, or from nothing. Here's a direct quote from John Paul. Genesis, he says, introduces us into the mystery of creation, that is, of the beginning of the world by the will of God, who is omnipotence and love. Consequently, every creature, every creature, dogs, trees, every creature bears within itself the sign of an original and fundamental gift, the gift of existence. Creation is a gift because man appears in it who, as an image of God, is able to understand the meaning of the gift. The meaning of the gift, he says, in the call from nothingness into existence. So the uniqueness of humanity is not only that we are called from nothingness into existence, all every creature is, the uniqueness is that we can understand it, that we can know it. We can understand that the gift has a directionality, that we're called out of nothingness into existence and toward communion with another person, other persons generally, but certainly another person, and then ultimately to a communion with the Trinitarian persons of God. So there's a directionality to how we're called, and the human person can understand this and not simply receive it. The body is a witness to this gift because it is a witness to the love from which the original gift of creation springs. Men and women, through their bodies, are able to live this gift with each other in a unique way. The physical differences between the sexes are ordered to procreation. Yes, you know that's the church's teaching. It's true. But for John Paul, it goes beyond that. It includes that, but supersedes it. The body's meaning and value goes beyond biological procreation to an expression of love, to communion. So the spousal meaning of the body concerns not just physical procreation. It concerns the gift of the two persons to each other, the communion. 
So marriage is intended in the theology of the body, not merely for biological procreation, although it is intended for that, but because by that, this gift from nothingness into existence, into a communion, gets propagated and passed on to yet another generation who is then also called from nothingness into existence from this communion. You see the point? And they too are then called to the Trinitarian communion with the Trinitarian persons. So the drive for the other, the capacity for love and self-gift, is fulfills a person's existence, but also then propagates and makes humanity co-givers with God and co-creators in this sort of trajectory of nothingness into communion. So in some ways, John Paul would say that the legacy of parents is much more than simply what your kids do or what they achieve in this life. But the legacy becomes eternal when your children are enjoying the beatific vision of God in the eternal communion. See, that's the legacy every parent should want, right? And as every parent knows, there can be a lot of detours to that, right? Now, the second sort of theme of the theology of the body that we'll talk about here is the theme of sin. In the Genesis narrative, John Paul says that the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, would have understood all of this. They would have understood the nature of their bodies. They would have seen not the differences, but that they're directed to each other, that they fulfill each other. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is why man leaves his parents and cleaves to his wife. All of these things. They would have an intuitive, intuitive understanding that they were made, that they were a gift to each other. Original sin ruins all of that. All of that intuition is kind of gone. Not destroyed, but no longer intuitively known. And the body, because of sin, no longer is an, as, as effective in communicating the person. Traditionally, the, we would say in our Catholic teaching that sin introduces concupiscence to the body, right? So inflamed sensual desire. Remember the three uh, effects of original sin. The intellect is darkened, the will is weakened, and the passions are inflamed. This is what we all live with even after we're baptized, sorry to say, okay? We all have to live with that. And that because of that, that concupiscence and the inflamed desire, the body doesn't express the person or communicate the person as clearly or as purely as it did. The body can revolt against our personhood. Um, and uh, we have a hard time mastering the body. How much of our culture today is, really has a problem with the body, either overemphasizing it on the one hand, um, you know, think about an attempt, the attempt to stay young, the attempt to, you know, always be in perfect shape. That's not a criticism, you know, but the attempt to always um, have everything just right and where it's supposed to be and all of these things. Right. Or underemphasizing it on the other manipulation, modification, mutilation of the body. Right. That either the body's uh, overemphasized or underemphasized. John Paul would say that that's all from original sin. We are no longer. Um, immediately masters of our bodies, of our central desires. We no longer are completely free in regard to them. And if we don't, we have to sort of work on self-mastery in order to gain an interior freedom because you cannot give what you do not have. And if you do not have yourself, if we do not have ourselves and self-mastery, we cannot give ourselves. To the extent that we remain slaves to our passions, 
we are not free. This is St. Paul. I do not do the very good, I do not do the good I want, I do the very evil that I hate. Right? And so this is our battle. Our, our nature, our bodies especially, crave the other, looks to the other in order to be gift to the other. But concupiscence also means that we're always craving and we're always desiring the other for ourselves. We're never satisfied. So the desire combined with concupiscence means precisely, and this is John Paul, that the union of man and woman after original sin is no longer completely um, satisfying. It can become insatiable, right? St. Thomas talks about this in all sorts of different terms, but um, but think about, I, I mean, even married couples have to work on um, how they relate to each other, whether in the bedroom or otherwise, right? That there can be an overemphasis in one way or the other. Marriage doesn't automatically solve that problem, right? The interior struggle of our body's impulses because of original sin, St. John Paul II, can tend to alienate us from our body. I mean, how many people feel alienated from our body? Don't raise your hands. I mean, all of us probably in some ways feel alienated from our bodies. But how much of our culture is about being alienated from one's body and feeling alienated from the body? The body easily becomes something else than that which contributes to my happiness and my flourishing and my personal identity. We have a tendency to distance ourselves from our bodies, you know, it's a shop. And this is true even of some Catholic piety of the 20th century. You know, how many times have people said, I can't wait to shuffle off this mortal coil? Well, that's not Catholic. The body is part and parcel of who we are as human beings. It's not simply a shell that we're, we're, we're inhabiting temporarily. Although it is plagued by original sin, and you will separate from the body at death, you're going to get it back. Better and improved, but you're going to get it back, right? After sin, St. John Paul II says, the task that men and women have before them, this is an interesting word he uses here, is to reconstruct the meaning of the self-gift according to the objective reality of creation. You have, to, you have to work on it. It's no longer intuitive. The inherent spousal meaning of the body is not destroyed by sin. The body can still communicate, but because of sin, our communications with our body are distorted. And not just in the conjugal act, but all of our communications, the ability to lie, the ability to put on a good face when, in fact, we are angry or sad. The inability uh, we labor under to communicate honestly with each other when we have to communicate honestly. All of that is the loss of the meaning of the body as expressive of the person. That's why we need Christ's redemption. Now, it's in the marital act, to move on a little bit on this, it's in the marital act, which is what the theology of the body is really defending, the true marital act as the church has always understood it. And as scripture, he would argue, understands it. It's in the marital act, the conjugal act, that the spousal meaning of the body is on full display in this life and also is fully susceptible to the destruction of original sin or the problems of original sin. Because Precisely because the body has a meaning, a drive to the other, is precisely why the body speaks a language sometimes contrary to what you might intend or the couple might intend. Right? 
Men and women use their body, as I say, to communicate with one another and the world, words, facial expressions, and so forth. The body is the thing that communicates. And just as sometimes you may think you're putting on a good face, when in fact you're not, the same can happen in other bodily communications. Okay? Uh, the conjugal act is a communication between spouses. The problem is that because of sin, communicating with the body is no longer that simple because, as I say, we're alienated from our bodies. And so what couples have to do, this reconstructing, the, word, the other word he uses, they have to reread the language of the body, which is to say they have to work to regain what the body means and to use it according to its objective nature in their communication with each other. All of this, as I say, goes back to the fact that for Wojtyla, the body is an objective reality that must be respected. It's not incidental to who we are. And so here's, here's a direct quote. He says this, if the human being in marriage and indirectly also in other spheres of mutual life gives to his behavior a meaning in conformity with the fundamental truth of the language of the body, then he is in the truth. In the opposite case, if he commits lies and falsifies the language of the body, he commits sin. He is a liar. You might be able to see where this is going, right? In their interactions, couples must not use their bodies or communicate with their bodies in ways that are contrary to the truth. And what is the truth? The truth, fundamentally, is the consent that the couple exchanges on their wedding day by which they say to each other that they are giving themselves to each other in a true, complete, and radical self-gift. That those words mean something in front of the altar before God. It's what confects and makes the sacrament. Now, the good news is that the final, and this is the final theme I'm going to bring out on the theology of the body before we turn to um, St. Thomas Aquinas, is the redemption of the body. Because God becomes incarnate and takes the human body, takes the human nature, which means he assumes the human body, his redemption thereby redeems the body and gives us, therefore, the grace to be able to reconstruct and reread the meaning of the body, no longer just in its created truth, but also in its redeemed truth, in the redeemed light of Christ. So that the body and the communication of the communion between the two persons becomes open through Christ to the Trinitarian communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At which point, John Paul says, that the spousal meaning of the body becomes, in heaven, no longer simply spousal, but becomes virginal becomes the virginal meaning of the body. And it, it doesn't mean what we tend to think, he doesn't mean by what we tend to think it, mean, it means in our culture, not that you know, you should, somehow you've never had sex again. It means the virginal meaning of the body with God, the spousal attribute is ultimately intended for your relationship with God, in which God gives himself to us in a complete radical self-gift, and we give ourselves to him in the beatific vision as a radical self-gift. And that this purity then overflows into all other forms of communion through the one perfect communion of the Trinity, right? In a sort of pure virginal way. Does that make sense? Now, this is what a couple has to work through. Um, 
through the grace of the sacrament, to reread and reconstruct and to live that truth of the complete and radical self-gift that they communicate in the words of consent, which, being a good Thomas, words are never just words. If you say them, you have to mean them, right? And so for him, when couples use the body, and here the theology of the body, he's he's essentially commenting and articulating a defense of the church's teaching on contraception, is that the use of contraception speaks a lie because the couple withholds, even if they are in mutual agreement, a very essential aspect of their bodies from each other, which is their fertility. So this is Paul the sixth, thus Paul the sixth famous line in Humanae Vitae, that the unitive and procreative dimensions of the conjugal act are inseparable is for St. John Paul II true precisely because the unitive is communicated through the bodily procreative. And the procreative is the fruit of the unitive. You can't have one without the other. You can't tell your spouse, I love you, and at the same time withhold something of yourself and something of your, of your body. It's a, it's a contradiction, right? Attempting to communicate the unitive without the procreative is not, in fact, unitive. It's a lie that doesn't respect the objective reality of the body and the structure of the human person. Now, my contention is that St. Thomas had a lot of this stuff. Naturally, this is my contention. That St. Thomas had a lot of this stuff figured out way back in the 13th century. True, in the 13th century, people didn't speak about the matters of marriage as much as they did in the 20th century or even the 21st. And true, you're not going to find a treatise on sexuality and the human person in the Summa Theologiae, but he had many of the principles down. And Wojtyla knew that. When he was teaching at the University of Lublin in the late 1950s, he taught St. Thomas straight from the Summa in many of the ways that the Dominicans at the Dominican House of Studies would have been teaching St. Thomas at the same time, just opening up the Summa, reading it, and then helping the students understand what St. Thomas is teaching. And that's how Wojtyla taught in the 1950s himself. It wasn't until the birth control debate in the 1960s and 1970s that he began to see that the same arguments weren't really landing and they weren't really connecting with people. And so, as I say, the theology of the body is scriptural, but it presumes many of the conclusions that Aquinas had reached, even though John Paul never really explicitly mentioned them or talk about them. In fact, a number of times in the theology of the body, he explicitly says that it's not his intention to go into the metaphysics and, and philosophy of all of this. He's focusing on the subjective side of the human person, of human experience, of the human body, and what scripture has to say about that. And I want to suggest, and these are going to be very brief, um, six aspects, we're skipping stones across the pond here, six aspects of Aquinas' teaching that not only support the theology of the body and this notion of the spousal meaning of the body, but also provide a deeper philosophical, metaphysical, philosophical, theological foundation to what John Paul II was doing in his catechesis. These are all basic Thomistic principles, but have largely now been forgotten, especially in a lot of current discussions on marriage and the theology of the body. But as I say, make no mistake, Wojtyla knew all of these. So first, the appetite for perfection. St. Thomas had a strong sense 
that every creature has an appetite or a desire to do what it's created to do, to be perfect in its own way. So a rock wants to be perfect as a rock is perfect. A goose wants to be perfect as a goose is perfect. You want to be perfect and fulfill what it is to be you, to be a human. Um, Perfection for St. Thomas following Aristotle is synonymous with existence, with being an act, being an actualizing potential, and with the good. So all created being, whether man, woman, dog, tree, rock, electron, proton, and anything else in creation wants, and as much as we could speak of a rock wanting anything, all creation, all creatures want to be fully actualized, fully perfect, fully good. They want to be what they are. Uh, trees, in this sense, want to be actualized by growing toward the sun. Geese want to be actualized by flying south for the winter. The whole of creation is yearning for its perfection and supreme good, which is God himself. All creation wants this perfection. And this actualization, Father Ambrose would teach a whole class to our students just on this point, but on this actual this actualization requires always, requires something else or somebody else in order to come about. We can no creature can become perfect simply by its own principles. It has to be moved and move to something else. Does that make sense? So everything requires another agent, another to, to reach its perfection. This is true, whether that other agent is the supreme good, who is God himself, or whether it's other created agents who are good in some respects or actualized in certain respects and who can therefore make other agents good. So the fire actualizes a cold pizza to make it nice and warm, makes it more good, more perfect, right? Um, the human person who is a composite of body and soul is actualized and therefore already perfect in some respects, but not in others. None of us is completely perfect. None of us is actualized to our full potential. Part of that is simply because we're matter and spirit. And part of being material things is that we can decay. We do decay, you know. Uh, all the more so because of original sin. Right? And we need others. We need other persons and other things and other act activities to bring our imperfections and our various capacities and our potentials to act, to actualize in ways that we have not yet been actualized. So one way to put this is that every person is meant to find fulfillment outside of himself or herself. Every agent, the... The formal way to put this, using formal air, I have to be careful because I got a philosophy. I mean, Father Ambrose teaches philosophy to our students, so I'm a moral theologian. You know, we might say to put this more formally: um, every agent acts for an end. Every agent acts for a purpose. Odd extra. Okay. Now, get this: for Saint Thomas, love. In one sense, and one of the ways he uses the word love, in its most primal sense, is that drive, that movement to perfection. So in that sense, we can speak of even a rock having a sort of natural love to be on the ground, or a goose having a natural love to fly south. But what separates these natural loves, and say an animal love, 
a dog's love, from human love, is precisely for St. Thomas that men and women can know what they love and who they love and can understand and attempt to understand what they love and who they love and can take steps to achieve and reach what they love and who they love and can understand the connection. If I do this, I'll get closer to her or him, right? Ours is a chosen love. We get to choose where we find our perfection and who we love. In what activity, in what things, in what person. Ours is a chosen love. We'll come back to that in a moment. And so uh, St. Thomas would agree with St. John Paul II that all creation is called out of nothingness, that man has a unique role in this precisely because he has understanding and the power to choose, and that this is all part of the drive of love, this movement from nothingness to existence to perfection. Right? The second principle, hylomorphism. This is a fancy word if you've not taken philosophy. This is a second rele- relevant characteristic. Um, Aquinas' thought is strictly hylomorphic. It's the theory that the body and soul are so, even how I talk about it, it's going to be a little bit weak, but are so united, so intertwined that they are, in a sense, um, even using the word codependent is not right because it makes it seem like they're two separate things. For St. Thomas, the body and, and, and spirit, the body and soul are not two separate things. We, we think that way because we live in a post-Cartesian world, you know, and we think of the body as the shell and the soul as the captain of the machine. That is not Catholic. That is not, not Thomas. That's not Thomas. That is a fundamentally flawed modern view of who we are. The body and, and our souls are, are composite and mutually implicate each other. Right? The human person is not just a body. And the human person is not just a soul. The human person is a body-soul composite. It's completely wrong to think that John Paul was the first to figure this out. This has been the Catholic teaching from the beginning. Aquinas had already realized that the body and soul are inextricably linked in the human person's activity. The body is the material in us. The rational soul is the formal in us. It's what makes, the human, it's what makes us human. It's what makes the body a human body. Uh, but the body would not be the body as it is unless it were formed by the human soul. And the human soul is such that it requires the body. The body is made for the soul, but this doesn't mean that the body is a mere instrument of the soul. Because even though the soul can live without the body, the human soul is such a thing, such an entity, that it needs the body to be complete, which is why we believe in the resurrection of the dead. St. Thomas is so strong on this, so strong on this, that in a way, he, he, he argues that even in the beatific vision, until the resurrection of the dead, you're not quite a full human person. I mean, now that's made up for because you're in the beatific vision, right? So, you know, but the, the, the soul was made for the body, which is why the resurrection of the dead is so important and, and the glorified body. Um, He's consistent about this all the way through his life and work. Um, So while there is an immaterial element uh, to human thought, think about all of our great ideas of human freedom and love, and uh, that can't be explained by simple bodily chemistry. No matter how often you want to hook up a brain to uh, a CAT scan or any other neurological scan, you might see things light up, but it doesn't explain abstract thought and universal thought of the human person. That's the work of the soul. But yet, 
the soul and the intellect needs the body, needs those organs. Everything we do in the soul is through the body. All knowledge is taken in through the senses and processed internally through the brain. So St. Thomas would not be, he would love, I think St. Thomas would love uh, modern uh, neuroscience. I think he'd love that field and, and seeing how that works. Right? And he wouldn't be threatened by it. Um, he doesn't deny um, the, the need for the material element. In fact, there is a need for it. The, the body takes in all the information, the brain kind of processes it internally, but it is the intellect, the immaterial element, that gives us universal immaterial thoughts, the great thoughts of humanity. He's so consistent, um, as I say, with this notion of the body and soul that he is very strong that the per our personhood is precisely because we are embodied persons. It's, your personhood is different than my personhood because of the body. We share the reality of being bodily with animals, but we share the immaterial element with God and the angels. Our bodies are made for the souls. So our souls are made for our bodies. Both are equally important and for St. Thomas. The third principle for St. Thomas, we could talk more about that during the, he's got all sorts of fascinating things like even how the angels can read our bodies, but can't read our souls. But the soul, since the soul is already always manifested in the body, it's almost like they're reading our souls. It's really quite remarkable, okay? Uh, the third principle is rational love. As I said, human love is distinguished from all of those natural drives to perfection, natural love, because precisely because we can choose. We are composite creatures, body and soul. So we do have the bodily side, which we share with the animals. Authentic, for, for St. Thomas, authentic and distinctly Distinctively, human love requires that we have our passions and our emotions, our central desires in order, which is to say that our animal side or our bodily side has to be subordinate to the higher purposes and realities of what it means to be human. And Aquinas, along with St. John Paul II and the classical Christian tradition, would insist, insist that this is inherently a difficult task after original sin. When the harmony between our intellect, our souls, our minds, and our body was lost. By definition, remember, love for Aquinas is a drive to perfection, the drive out of oneself to the good. Everything we do, we do because we find it to be some good for us, even though we can sometimes be mistaken on who is good or what is good or what we should do. But married men and women find some perfection in each other. That's why uh, they get married. They find complementarity and perfection in each other. But for this love to be truly human love, it must be characterized by what is specifically human. Love must be a choice that's guided by reason and guided by truth. We tend to live in a culture that tells us not to overthink love, and there might be some truth to that. But St. Thomas and the classical Christian tradition along with him um, is not trying to snuff out passion or love. On the contrary, it's simply, he's simply arguing, as we should argue, that when our passions and our emotions are directed to the highest part of who we are, our reason and our, and our, and our goodness and our wills to love, they become, in fact, catalysts for us to become good persons. It's only then that our emotions become actually distinctively human. St. Thomas 
would say that when we are only following our desires and our carnal cravings, we're actually acting more like animals than human beings, than human persons. Um, we're not animals. When a person's love is motivated only by carnal desire or only concupiscence, the person Aquinas taught degrades not only his lover's dignity, but his own because he's loving his bodily side, which is his lower side, more than his higher side, more than his mind, more than his heart, so to speak, for love. Inflamed passion is not ordered to reason and can only distract and, and even temporarily suspend reason. That's why people can do what they do in a fit of rage or in a fit of passion. It's often irrational. The person, however, who, who habitually makes choices that are guided by reason separates himself from the animals because his choices are not based purely on passion and emotion or on craving or instinct, but they're based on the truth and on goodness. Such a person we would call a virtuous person. That's what a virtuous person is. And a virtuous person loves rightly. St. Thomas would say a virtuous person is not a stoic, is not a person who doesn't feel. In fact, a virtuous person is someone who feels more deeply. Because a virtuous person, because the passions are in right order, is not afraid to feel his emotions or her emotions, is not fearful that they're going to make him or her do something she regrets. They're able to feel deeply and rightly because they're directed properly. Emotion's part of who we are. Interesting thing, interesting little note. In the Summa, St. Thomas spends more time on the passions than any other single topic, including the Trinity. Right? And he's often accused of being stale and boring. Right? Fourth, these last few will just go quickly because I know I've talked a lot here, but the equality of men and women. Even though St. Thomas's strict hylomorphism, now bear with me here, ladies. Uh, even though Aquinas' strict hylomorphism and his indebtedness to Aristotelian biology forced him to assert the physical superiority of men to women in a very qualified sense, he nonetheless advocated equality between the sexes within his milieu. His settled position on marriage was that it is a conjugal relationship which he called the highest form of friendship, amicitia maxima. And this is interesting, because in spite of their sexual differences, however, and even though he argued, following St. Paul and most of the Christian tradition, that the husband is the head of the family, that there, he, he still argued that there is a certain equality between husband and wife, because equality is necessary for friendship. You cannot be friends with those with whom you are not equal. So there is, in fact, a domestic justice, my word, not his, that exists between, that exists between husband and wife. Friendship only exists between equals. It entails a common endeavor, a common endeavor and an attempt to make each other better persons. That's what every friendship should do. True friendship for Aquinas, following Aristotle, wants the good, not only for oneself, but for one's friend. So much so that you begin to see your friend's good as your own good and celebrate their success as yours. It only exists between equals. Friendship that's based only on utility, what a friend can give to me, is an imperfect friendship and ceases to be a friendship when the utility ceases. 
How many friendships and how many relationships end when a passion for sexual desire ends? True friendship does not end when the friend ceases to be useful to me or to the goal. So concerned was Aquinas about the equality between husband and wife that all of his arguments about monogamy and indissolubility of marriage as necessary aspects are about maintaining the equality between the spouses. He believed that living marriage in any other way than monogamously and in an indissoluble relationship effectively would reduce wives to a position of inequality and servility to husbands. And he was ready to go to the mat for that. The fifth to mystic principle is the marital debt. I wonder how many people have heard about this. This is language we don't use anymore, but I'm in favor of it. In St. Thomas's view, the husband and wife, and it's not just his, this is a classic church teaching, the husband and wife give to each other a certain authority over their bodies in the exchange of mutual consent. The gift, which is traditionally called the marital debt, which I realize is somewhat of an archaic term and sounds rather transactional, is what each spouses give to the other of themselves. Now, traditionally, what this has meant is that each spouse can request the conjugal act from the other because you belong to me and I belong to you. Um, And in theory, that saying no was not an option, is not an option. Now, this language seem, may seem dated, but it does show us that St. Thomas had some understanding that the husband and wife had indebted themselves to each other in a, in a form of a gift, even if he doesn't use language like self-gift. But it also shows that he wanted to protect the couple from lust and the possibility of objectifying each other sexually. In fact, St. Thomas, this people are always surprised to find to learn this, but it's not a huge, obviously, it's not a huge part of his, his work, but he does provide a lot of parameters on how to ask for the debt to be uh, paid, so to speak, uh, to prevent the spouses from lusting after each other. Although I want to tell you, he only mentions the possibility of a husband lusting after his wife and never the other way around. He doesn't get detailed, but he leaves a lot to prudence and the couple to discern in the relationship. But the whole point, to use somewhat contemporary language, is to protect the bodies of the couple, to protect the body from each other, from being used and objectified, even as the man and woman have given their bodies to each other, so that it doesn't become merely um, satisfaction, but in fact becomes a gift. Number six, and finally, toward the end of his life, St. Thomas wrote that the formal element of marriage is the inseparable union of souls. Uh, Some recent scholarship has begun to focus on this statement, this idea that for Aquinas, um, it's an inseparable union of souls and how this might relate to contemporary debates about this whole question of procreative and unitive. Uh, While Aquinas and scholasticism can sometimes be accused of being overly naturalistic or physicalistic, in emphasizing procreation, the fact that Aquinas understood marriage to consist in an inseparable union of souls is highly significant. Because just as the human person is a composite of body and soul, in which what is formal, the soul, must be united to what is material, the body, 
And just as the body and soul cannot be separated in this life, so neither can the formal and material elements of marriage be separated. The formal element of marriage, the union of souls, cannot be separated from the material element of marriage, which is the union of bodies. Nor can these be separated from the ends of marriage, which is the begetting and upbringing of children. And St. Thomas has a lot of arguments on this, which we can't get into, which is benefited not simply by the material biological aspect, the material union, but by the formal union of souls, the the bond of husband and wife. For him, this was also a big deal about monogamy and indissolubility. It's about raising the children, which takes a lot, even he acknowledged, takes a lot longer than animals to raise their children, right? So in marriage, just as in the human person, the body is the point of contact for the soul. The conjugal act is the point of contact for the union of souls. The two cannot be separated. So insisting that marriage is formally the union of souls makes Marriage, therefore, a distinctively human endeavor by these unique creatures who are embodied souls. The insistence upon the union of souls elevates the procreative aspect of marriage above the merely biological to the distinctively human. The procreative and the unitive are inseparable because we're not brute animals. It's not simply about producing uh, offspring. Marriage entails much more than breeding children because human beings are capable of a unique, chosen, rational love that unites spouses spiritually as well as bodily. To conclude, what does all this mean for the theology of the body? Obviously, St. John Paul II articulated a great deal, but I think it's a mistake to interpret it simply on its own as something radically new. There are ways it can be used to fortify a lot of the traditional arguments that St. Thomas uh, read or met, St. Thomas articulated, and the church articulated. And I think St. John Paul II would have agreed with that. In one of his final works, his last memoir, Memory and Identity, which was his last published work, I think it appeared just months before he died in English, he said this, If we wish to speak rationally about good and evil, we have to read St. Thomas Aquinas. That is, the philosophy of being. With the phenomenological method, for example, we can study experiences of morality, religion, or simply what it is to be human, and draw from them a significant enrichment of our knowledge. Yet we must not forget that all these analyses implicitly presuppose the reality of being, and also the reality of being human, which is the reality of being a creature. If we do not set out from such realist presuppositions, such as those from St. Thomas, we will end up in a vacuum with no answers. So Aquinas thought provides a lot of those realist presuppositions. I encourage you to continue to read and read a lot of great things on the theology of the body, but I also encourage you to read great things from St. Thomas. Thank you so much. Great, so we have time for uh, two questions. Hi, thanks so much for being here tonight. I really appreciate the talk. Um, I was wondering, uh, so in today's Catholic and adult, you know, adult culture, I think when couples get married, it kind of is it as an excuse, like now we can succumb to our passions. Mm-hmm. So I have a buddy who just got married a few years ago, and he's had kid after kid after kid. He was many to the other day, and it's just, you know, they're open to life. They don't want contraception, but he's just exhausted. And he yeah. just wishes the church was more informative on, and they're doing NFP and everything as well, but he just wishes there was some kind of 
don't know, he just wanted hope um, to get through it. And what I wanted to explain to him um, was, I, I, wonder, I think John Paul II talks about this, but I'm wondering if Thomas Aquinas says something about this too, is that the Marital Act is kind of like the liturgical calendar. There's periods of feasting and fasting. Does Aquinas say anything about that in regards to the marital sexual union? Is that a you, you know, I, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, NFP was that it's kind of like a 20th century, like 19th century, 20th century thing. You know, I can give you some strands of answers to this. I mean, your friend, I think, is just I don't know if there's anybody else in the room that has four or five kids, you know. But I mean, at that stage, I I mean, if you were coming to me, I would tell him to suck it up. Right. Um <laughs> <laughs> um, that's my this. And remember, I'm a professor of pastoral studies at uh, the Dominican House of Studies. Um, look, um, I, I tend to think in a lot of Catholic preparations for marriage has been an overemphasis on the. I do think you're right. I do think sometimes couples get married thinking, okay, now we don't have to worry about. And John Paul and love and responsibility. And I would recommend you read Love and the Responsibility before you read Theology of the Body. And, and Catholic U just came out with a new. No, it's not Catholic U. Uh, Paulist books just came out with a new translation. It's it's the book he wrote in the '60s that helped Paul VI write Humanae Vitae. Okay, it's much better. And he's got a great the appendix is much, much more blunt like this. You know, he's got a lot of blunt advice, you know, for couples. Um, it, it is true. I think that marriage and this is his whole point. Um, marriage takes away shame from sex. You know, when I taught it, I, my first assignment as a priest was Providence College. I used to say to the kids in, in our morality class, I said, you know, once you're married, there's no such thing as a walk of shame. Right. Those don't exist anymore. And I would also say uh, to, and I also say, in fact, even to a group of young adults like this, that only married couples know what sex really is. Anybody who's had sex or is having sex outside of marriage, while you, physically, obviously, it's the same act, it comes with all sorts of emotional, you know, guilt, shame, and all sorts of things built into it that just completely disappear within marriage. Right. It just becomes part of who you are and how you relate to your wife. Now, is it possible that, you know, there are seasons in a marriage where it's thunder under the covers and, you know, we move on to, you know, then there are showstoppers. Right. Um, like four or five kids. But that's part of it. I think that's part of it. And every married couple that I know, and I know a lot of married couples tell me that's part of it. Right. Um, you know. I wonder sometimes if marriage prep were doing going the opposite end. Like overemphasizing NFP, right? And my position, and I think it's St. Thomas' position, is that when you are married, and this is what I tell all the couples I marry, um, the church's position is when you marry, you're having sex. A lot of it, a little bit of it, but you're having sex. And you're having children, or you're trying to have children. If there are all sorts of reasons why a couple might need to practice NFP. And that's not for the priest to tell them. And Pius, Pope Pius XII gave a lot of talks to newlyweds, and he talked about these things. There could be reasons like this. I, honey, I am just, we've got five, four, whatever it is. I need, we just need a break. And there are some women, you know, I've, I've run into women, older women who had like four or five kids. They're like, Father, I hated the church because I, I knew I was not a good mother. I knew I wasn't going to be a good mother, and I couldn't be a good mother for five kids. I think those are discernments that a couple has to make with each other. But always the default position is you're having kids until you're not. Right? That's the default position. 
It's not, the default position is not, let's sit down and figure out how many kids we're having. That's not the default position. The default position is you're having sex and you're having kids, unless there's a good reason not to. And you, the couple, but that's where, that's the starting point. Does that make, you see the difference in, of mentality, you see? And what I always tell them, and I always, look, I, I do a certain part of the marriage prep for my people, but then I always send them to a good married couple to do like hours and hours and hours and give them the gritty details. But every single couple I send my, my young couples to, I always say, look, with the feasting and the, if NFP is difficult for you, you don't have to do it. It might mean you're not supposed to be doing it, right? Unless there's a real physical reason that, you know, and some couples, you know, unfortunately have to have, there are some physical reasons why they might have to do it that way. So I don't, I realize that doesn't answer your question. I'm just sort of, but you get, that's one of my soapbox issues. I, I do think, I mean, do y'all think that's true? I mean, do you think that sometimes people are going in, like, we're just going to sit down, like, when are we going to do NFP? Are we not going to do NFP? Are you ready? I mean, do we have enough money? We, I mean, you're not buying a car here. Can we pay the insurance? Can we pay the bills? You know? And um, I think the default is you're having sex and you're having, you're having children. And that should be the starting point. And everything else is then a reason why not. So that's that's might be a better, more pithy way of putting it. The question isn't why have children. The question is why not for the married couple, right? One more question. Sorry, that was a long, but you got me going. See. Thank you. Um, there was some talk maybe last year about extending the amount of time for marriage. Oh yeah. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Okay. Well. Um... What it was like to a year. Uh, well, I, your pastor's in the room, <laughs> and the Holy See just came out with something, and maybe the, I don't know if it was the U.S. Bishops or was it the Holy See, that they're talking about like a year-long marriage. Look, okay, here's, I'm going to tell you where this comes from. Do you know how long it takes to become a priest? <laughs> Eight years out of college. Eight years! Okay, there can be a mentality among some of my brother clerics of thinking that y'all are just not getting enough preparation for marriage, and that's why so many marriages are failing. All right? And so what we need to do is have another a year program, a two-year program. I can tell you, I don't know. Um, I haven't pulled the two other priests in the room here. I don't know any priest who thinks that that's going to work or that that's an idea. <laughs> he might think that that's going to work. I mean... It's, it's, marriage is a natural thing. Now, could we prepare couples better? But I would fear, my fear is that if you tell a couple you can't get married for 18 months, you're just asking them not to get married in the church, which is a live option for a lot of people. Now, is it a possibility of getting married and then continuing on in some sort of post-marriage catechumenate type thing? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm very leery about telling people that, yeah. So I don't know where that's going to fall on policy level because it's still so very new and it's just being talked about in the upper echelons. I'm, I'm just not sure. I will say this is not a, this is a criticism, a critique, criticism, critique, not of our Holy Father, but of the Curia of the Vatican, is that sometimes... Um, you can be in a bubble and think that another committee or another document or another program is the solution, you know, and that's not, um, I think 
we as Americans have probably learned that that's usually not the answer. All right, let's thank Father for his... uh... (laughs) Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.